Hello and welcome to the May 2014 edition of the Lesbian Gay Law Notes podcast. I am Matt Skinner, Executive Director of Legal, the LGBT Bar Association of Greater New York. With me as always is Professor Art Leonard of New York Law School, the Chief Editor and Writer of Lesbian Gay Law Notes, the most comprehensive monthly publication covering the latest legal and legislative developments affecting the LGBT community here and abroad. Just a reminder, if you're listening to us on iTunes and enjoying our program, please do take a minute to rate us highly so that we will continue to gain more listeners. All right, first up this month, we had some major international rulings out of India and Australia in April, uh, both groundbreaking wins for transgender individuals. Uh, let's start with India, Art. Okay, India. India is such a complex situation. Uh, in India, the Supreme Court has dozens of judges, and they sit in two judge panels. Mm-hmm. And decisions by two judge panels could be subjected to review by other panels, but it's all discretionary on the part of the judges. Yeah. So the decision, which was issued on April 15th in the case of National Legal Services Authority against the Union of India, uh, dealt with the issue of the status of transgender people under India's constitution and laws. Uh, the, the claim was made that transgender people are subjected to routinely to discrimination, to persecution, of course to p- possible prosecution under the sodomy laws uh, which were uh, struck down a few years ago by the High Court in Delhi but were revived by a different two-judge panel of the Supreme Court late last year. Uh, so uh, the National Legal Services Authority and ultimately there were some other suits filed and they were all consolidated into this case that went to the Supreme Court. The court mentioned in passing the sodomy case but said that's not the issue before us. The issue before us is the status of transgender people. We think that's a different issue. We're not commenting on the other case. And then they issued a decision which is 180 degrees in the opposite direction from the prior case. That is, in the uh, case that was decided uh, right at the beginning of this year, Kushal versus Nas Foundation, which rejected the challenge to the sodomy law, the panel said, we don't look to international law to decide on Indian law Uh, The Indian Constitution has nothing to say about this. This is an issue for the legislature to decide. Uh, It doesn't affect a whole lot of people. Therefore, it's not important enough for the Supreme Court. This was the view of the court in the Kushal case versus Nas Foundation. In this case, the two-judge panel takes exactly the opposite position. They take the position, uh, first of all, that international norms are relevant. International conventions are relevant. And they go through several different sections of the Indian Constitution to say that there are significant equal protection and due process violations here. And furthermore, they never mention, they never say, of course, transgender people are a tiny portion of the population. Therefore, the the issue is beneath the mention of this court. Mm. Instead, they take what is really a tiny portion of the population and they write a decision which is extraordinarily progressive and open-minded on difference and the importance of accommodating difference. And I think just to to read a few quotes will give you some of the idea here. Uh, Early in the opinion, Justice Radhakrishnan, who wrote the longer of the two opinions, said, discrimination faced by this group in our society is rather unimaginable and their rights have to be protected irrespective of chromosomal sex, genitals, assigned birth sex, or implied gender role. Rights of transgenders, pure and simple, like hijras, uh, eunuchs, etc., have also to be examined. 
so also their right to remain as a third gender, as well as their physical and psychological integrity. So the court is saying that uh, our society has traditionally, or at least traditionally since we were a British colony, have conceptualized all humankind in a binary gender uh, classification. You're either male or you're female. And they said, no, the, the gender is more continuous between their... There may be uh, distinctions, but the boundaries are not so firm and solid, and our society has to take people as they are and as they, as they believe they are. And in doing so, they refer to the litigation in Australia that we'll be talking about also, uh, pointing out that uh, Australia is now taking a position of uh, allowing people to state on their official government documents and registration forms that they identify neither as male nor female. And they say here, India must do the same. Uh, and uh, some of the things he says here, he says, gender identity lies at the core of one's personal identity, gender expression and presentation, and therefore it will have to be protected under Article 19A of the Constitution of India. A transgender's personality could be expressed by the transgender's behavior and presentation. The state cannot prohibit, restrict, or interfere with the transgender's expression of such personality, which reflects that inherent personality. Often the state and its authorities, either due to ignorance or otherwise, fail to digest the innate character and identity of such persons. We therefore hold that values of privacy, self-identity, autonomy, and personal integrity are fundamental rights guaranteed to members of the transgender community under Article 19.1a of the Constitution of India, and the state is bound to protect and recognize those rights. Now, if that is the constitutional doctrine of the Supreme Court of India, the sodomy law decision is inexplicable. Yeah. And it's, it's important to note that at around the same time that the court issued this decision, a different panel of the court expressed willingness to consider reopening the sodomy case. It seems that there are various stages that you can go through mm -hmm. under, under Indian constitutional law in dealing with a decision that turns out to be controversial. Mm -hmm. uh, the original decision, an attempt was made to get the original court to reconsider it, and they turned it down, and uh, a direct appeal was turned down. But there is finally a uh, petition for a curative procedure of some sort by which a much larger panel of the court reconsiders and tries to reconcile the decision with other decisions. And uh, an argument has actually been held uh, where the government, among others, was petitioning the court to reconsider uh, because the government, which is now up for re-election and which is not considered likely to be re-elected, right. uh, wants to get this resolved before the new government comes in uh, because the new government will most likely be further to the right than, right. than the current government. Uh, so there is a possibility that the Supreme Court of India may be reconsidering the sodomy decision. I, it was argued recently. I haven't heard that the panel has announced whether they're going to actually address it on the merits, which would require further briefing and arguments. But it seems pretty clear that the decision that was issued on the sodomy case is inconsistent in doctrine. With this decision, and then they also mention sexual orientation. Yes, uh, they mention it several times, and this is odd. Yeah. Uh, we therefore conclude, wrote uh, 
Justice Radhakrishnan on a point in which the other judge on the panel, Justice Sikri, stated full agreement, quote, that discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation or gender identity includes any discrimination, exclusion, restriction, or preference which has the effect of nullifying or transposing equality by the law or the equal protection of laws guaranteed under our Constitution, and hence we are inclined to give various directions to safeguard the constitutional rights of the members of the TG community. And they use the initial TG several times in the opinion. Uh, And they throw in sexual orientation there and in a few other places in the opinion. They couple them, sexual orientation and gender identity, in speaking in terms of specific constitutional provisions and rights. So if that's the case, how can the sodomy law stand? Uh, so it seems to me that this panel is signaling quite a difference of approach yeah. from the other panel. Turning to Australia just briefly, uh, the Indian decision references an intermediate appellate court's ruling in the Australia case, but uh, the High Court of Australia had actually issued a decision on April 2, which evidently hadn't gotten into the briefing for this case or the argument for this case. So it wasn't uh, specifically referenced by the judges. The situation in Australia is that there is statutory authorization to change gender identity on uh, on official documents there. Uh, so if someone is transgender and they go through uh, sex right reassignment surgery, or as it's referred to in Australian uh, law, a sex affirmation procedure, uh, then the officials can change it from male to female. All right, we have an individual here who's identified in the... Uh, court papers as Nori, just by a single name, who had a uh, sex affirmation procedure and decided that the procedure hadn't resolved her, quote, sexual ambiguity. She neither identified fully as female or male, although she has adopted female pronouns in referring to herself. Mm -hmm. And so she didn't want to be identified on official papers as either male or female. And the uh, registrar of births, deaths, and marriages in New South Wales, the state where she lives, said, look, I've got two categories on the form. It's either male or female. Mm -hmm. And she wanted to be listed as not specified. And at first she she got a sympathetic hearing. Mm. Uh, But ultimately uh, she was turned down by the officials and the case was appealed. And the High Court of Australia, which is the nation's Supreme Court on the federal level, said, look, she can be not specified if she wants to be not specified, that uh, it's it's part of her rights. Uh, she said the act, even though the act says you can change from male to female or female to male, it said uh, that doesn't mean that the act requires that this classification of male or female can apply or is to be applied to everyone. It's a bit, bit revolutionary that they are also jettisoning the idea that as a matter of law, you must have a binary. You must either identify as male or female. Mm-hmm. So there's nothing in the act which suggests that the registrar is entitled, much less duty-bound, to register the classification of a person's sex inaccurately as male or female, having regard to the information which the act requires to be provided by the applicant. So the court says the act expressly recognized ambiguities and the existence of persons of indeterminate sex. And it's not the registrar's function to make moral or social judgments or to resolve medical issues or to form a view about the outcome of a sex affirmation procedure. That's up to the individual. Uh, you know, it's, I, look at, I look at the decision for India. I look at the decision from Australia. 
And I asked myself, could I imagine the U.S. Supreme Court rendering a decision like this? And I look at what Justice Kennedy has written for the court majorities in Romer Mm -hmm. and in Lawrence and in Windsor, and I think if Justice Kennedy was writing it, it would be possible Mm -hmm. because he has emphasized in these opinions the dignity of the individual Mm -hmm. and the requirement of the state to respect the dignity of the individual. Mm. And I recall after uh, the Lawrence decision was issued, there were some law review articles discussing how Lawrence could be a Magna Carta, a charter of rights for transgender Americans, Mm -hmm. if the courts were to take in a serious way the rhetoric of Justice Kennedy's uh, opinion about human autonomy and the right of Mm self-determination. And he summons those in favor of striking down a criminal ban on gay sex. But it goes further. It, It goes to human identity. And so I think these decisions are very much in line with Justice Kennedy's decision in uh, in Windsor and in, and in Lawrence. Mm-hmm. So it would be interesting to contemplate. The U.S. Supreme Court has almost never dealt with transgender issues. There was one case involving a transgender prisoner, uh, the Farmer case, uh, where the court said it would violate the Eighth Amendment for uh, prison officials to fail to take appropriate steps to protect transgender inmates mm-hmm. from harm. Uh, but the issue is now being litigated on whether transgender inmates are entitled to uh, sex reassignment surgery. And in some places, in some parts of the country, they're still litigating about whether they're entitled to hormones, even though there are loads of uh, decisions now, including at the appellate level, saying that they are. Uh, If if, uh, medical authorities in the prison agree that a person is transgender Mm. and that this is medically necessary treatment for them, they're entitled to it. And the First Circuit heard argument a while ago, but has yet to rule on whether the next step is also required. Uh, I would say that uh, given uh, the decision of the India Supreme Court, it would probably be required in India. If they have a national health service there, I think they would have to cover gender reassignment. And it was interesting. I mean, what what did the Indian Supreme Court order as, as sort of the remedy? The remedy? Well, among other things, they said you have to make available uh, uh, restroom facilities. Yeah specifically for transgenders, uh, and that would be a controversial point, I'm yeah. sure. Uh, but uh, specifically, they they took note that the government had communicated to the court that it had appointed an expert committee to study uh, the legal issues faced by transgender people and to come up with recommendations. So they said that committee was supposed to issue a report within three months of its formation, and the court said, we think that the conclusions of the report should be implemented within six months of the recommendation, which means it will be the new government that will be faced with an order from the Supreme Court to implement whatever the expert committee recommends. Uh, I suspect there might end up being some back and forth on that, depending on what they recommend. But this opinion, uh, to judge by the initial reactions in the Indian press, is not as controversial as you might think. That The, the press has sort of said, yeah, it's about time that uh, the courts and the government recognize the status of transgender people and extend to them all the rights and protections of society. Uh, Another fascinating thing about the decision, uh, part of the opinion rehearses the history of transgender people in India, and it seems that before the British came in and imposed their Western-style criminal codes, uh, transgender people had a rather significant role in Indian society, Mm -hmm. in government, uh, in uh, social relationships, uh, and a lot of that was suppressed mm. as a result of uh, the British 
takeover, and then when India became independent, they basically enacted the British Penal Code and things of that sort. And uh, so people who argued that it was uh, some kind of Western affectation or something uh, to uh, recognize transgender rights were mistaken in the view of the court. What we were doing was reviving a historic understanding that had been suppressed. So the result is more genuine and authentic to Indian tradition. Very interesting decision. All right. Well, we usually have some depressing international news to cover this month, so it's good to have some some good news for once. Uh, We're going to take a short break, and when we return, we'll be discussing the federal court marriage equality litigation updates from the last month. All right. We're back discussing the federal court marriage equality litigation updates from April. Art, let's start with Ohio. Okay. We're in the heartland this month in terms of our litigation updates. Ohio, Indiana, and then the Tenth Circuit dealing with uh, Utah and Oklahoma. So in Ohio, uh, Timothy S. Black, the U.S. District Judge in Cincinnati, who has already issued several significant opinions on marriage equality, issued two more. Yeah. Uh, On April 14th, He issued a ruling, a preliminary ruling in Henry versus Himes. Henry versus Himes is a case involving recognition of out of state same sex marriages for purposes of birth certificates. And three of the couple plaintiffs are lesbian couples who were married out of state but live in Ohio. Uh, One member of each couple is pregnant, expected to give birth within the next few months. They want their child's birth certificate to show both parents. They want the state to recognize that this will be the child of a married couple. The fourth plaintiff couple are a pair of gay men who actually live here in New York who adopted a child who was born in Ohio. Mm -hmm. And they want the child's substitute birth certificate because after an adoption, a child is issued a new birth certificate showing the names of their new parents. They want to be both listed as parents. And Ohio's refusing to do it. Uh, the ironic thing, as the court points out, is that there was a time when Ohio did that. Uh, there's this brief period of time uh, between the time that same-sex couples could marry elsewhere. And that is a brief period of time because same-sex couples couldn't marry anywhere in the world until early in this century. Mm-hmm. And uh, Canadian marriages got started in some provinces in 2003. Mm-hmm. 2004, the Massachusetts decision was implemented. Uh, subsequently, we, we got Connecticut and we got New York. But uh, the point is there are only a, a few places where same-sex couples could get married before the current Republican regime was elected in Ohio. And the previous uh, government officials were willing to issue such birth certificates on proof of a, vari- uh, of a valid marriage uh, out of state uh, by adopting couples. I'm not talking about... Uh, initial birth certificates when a child is born in Ohio. Now, we're talking about uh, an Ohio child who was adopted by an out-of-state couple Mm -hmm. who then asked for the new birth certificate. And the uh, health department was willing to do it, but uh, when John Kasich was elected governor, that changed. The direction went out, you know, we don't don't recognize those marriages because uh, in 2004, the people of Ohio passed a marriage amendment and that prohibits the state from recognizing same-sex marriages in any context for any purpose. Uh, so that's being challenged in this case. And Judge, uh, Judge Black said, well, look, in my prior rulings, I was dealing with death certificates. 
you know, we're, we're attacking this question at either end of the lifespan. Yeah. So I was, I was looking at people married out of state, someone dies in state, is the survivor going to be considered a spouse by the state? Are they going to be recorded on the death certificate yeah. as a surviving spouse? Is the decedent going to be identified as married? Uh, and he said, the reasoning behind my decision on those cases hasn't changed any. Nothing has changed my mind, and I think on the birth certificate issue, it's the same thing. Uh, he said that he has reached uh, not only the conclusion that the marriage recognition ban is unenforceable in the birth certificate context, but, you know, let's stop this chipping away. He says it is facially unconstitutional and unenforceable in any context whatsoever. And Judge Black did something unusual in his opinion that I noted in my article for Law Notes. Uh, not content just to use emphatic language, he put some of his emphatic language in boldface type underline. Mm -hmm. He wanted to make the point very clearly. Uh, he said, the fundamental right to marry is available even to those who have not traditionally been eligible to exercise that right. The right to marriage is a fundamental right that is denied to same-sex couples in Ohio by the marriage recognition bans. And he said it also re uh, contradicts the right that the Supreme Court has recognized in many decisions and that's reflected in state laws uh, of parents. Mm -hmm. Parental rights are fundamental. And he wrote, may be curtailed only under exceptional circumstances. So, you know, he's using strict scrutiny here or heightened scrutiny, and it doesn't really matter because it's clear that even under rational basis, uh, the state's rationale for this uh, just doesn't exist. He no. quotes... Justice Kennedy's reference in the Windsor case to the way that the refusal to recognize same-sex marriages humiliates the children mm -hmm. being raised by those couples. Uh, and he took a, spe a sp specific shot. I'll try to say that quickly. He took a specific shot at the attorneys for the state for arguing that just because there's a constitutional amendment, it somehow is immune to attack. He said... Uh, the court notes that given that all practicing attorneys, as well as the vast majority of all citizens in this country, are fully aware that unconstitutional laws cannot stand, even when passed by popular vote, defendants' repeated appeal to the purportedly sacred nature of the will of Ohio voters is particularly specious. That's pretty strong. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Characterizing the, the argument by attorneys for the state as particularly specious. Uh, I laughed out loud when I yeah, read that yeah, one. Yeah. Uh, so he says, uh, violation of substantive due process, violation of equal protection, and he orders that the state will have to uh, put both parents' names on the birth certificates. But uh, in response to a petition from the government a few days later, he said, but, of course, I have to stay my decision because it's clear the Sixth Circuit has already started issuing stays in cases from other states. The Supreme Court issued a stay in the Utah case that I can't compel the state to do something here without an appellate ruling. Uh, so the decision is stayed. But uh, heartened by Judge Black's approach to these things, the same law firm that's been filing all these cases on behalf of the same-sex couples has filed another case in Ohio in recent weeks a straightforward marriage case, yeah. right to marry case. I mean, these have all been recognition cases. Now they've come in on behalf of some same-sex couples and said, okay, let's go the, the whole route. Now the case was initially assigned to a different judge in the Southern District of Ohio, but the chances are good it will be reassigned to Judge Black because they tend to 
consolidate cases that raise the same issues before the yeah. same judge. So it'll probably go to and him. And we have a good 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 idea on how he feels about this after yeah, this opinion. I, I think I think we do. And then in <laughs> Indiana, uh, Indiana, we're at an earlier stage in the case. Uh, actually, several cases that were filed in Indiana. Now, the legislature last year was considering uh, a second vote on a proposed constitutional amendment. Right. And the way it works is if they took a second vote and approved the exact same language, then the amendment would go on the ballot this fall. Mm -hmm. But they decided not to approve the same language. They approved a narrower amendment. Uh, They were persuaded by the argument that, okay, maybe we're going to ban same-sex marriage, but do we also have to ban domestic partnerships and civil unions and anything else, domestic partnership benefits? Let's make it narrow and just focus on marriage. So by approving a different amendment, they started the clock all over. So it has to be approved after the next legislative election by the next legislature again before it can go on the ballot, right. by which time it may be a moot point depending how fast the issue gets to the U.S. Supreme Court. Right. So immediately after the legislature adjourned, there was a flood of lawsuits, and they've all been consolidated before uh, U.S. District Judge Richard L. Young in the Southern District of Indiana in Indianapolis, the state capital, under the name Baskin versus Bogan. Uh, so there's several different cases in here, uh, and they were proceeding through the pretrial stuff as usual, and then suddenly an issue arose with respect to one of the plaintiff couples, uh, Nikki Kwasny and Amy Sandler. Uh, they had a civil union in Illinois in 2011, and they got married in Massachusetts in 2013, and their role in the case is on the marriage recognition issue. Uh, they're raising two young children together. Nikki has been battling ovarian cancer since May 2009. She's undergone various courses of chemotherapy. It goes into remission. It comes back. She does more chemo. It goes into remission. It was in remission when they filed the lawsuit. But on April 9, the cancer recurred, and uh, things looked pretty grim. And so a motion was filed for a temporary restraining order just directed to uh, the administration of the death certificate process. If Nikki passes away while the legislation is pending, Judge Young, in in this TRO uh, decision, has said the state must record her as married when she dies and must record her surviving spouse as a spouse. And it was strictly limited. Uh, He ruled... uh, from the bench after a hearing on April 10th, uh, he gave a TRO to last until May 8th, which is actually the day that we're making this podcast. Mm. Uh, and the idea was that he would be holding a preliminary injunction hearing before then, and he did a few days ago. But we haven't seen an opinion, but it might actually be coming out today as we're, as we're speaking. On April 18th, he issued a written opinion to explain his ruling on the TRO. He rejected the state's argument that there was a standing issue here. The state said, well, nothing's happened yet, so she has no standing. And he said pretty much that's absurd. I mean, look at what's going on. In fact, he said uh, they've shown cognizable injuries that a TRO could deal with. For example, they drive out of state for the chemo at another hospital in in a neighboring state where the marriage is recognized, Illinois. You know, why should they have to cross the border, you know, to go for the treatment? Because she's afraid that the hospital in uh, Indiana might not recognize the marriage and will cause all kinds of problems. So he said there is definitely a tangible harm here. Mm -hmm. And he says also, and this 
goes back to the Windsor case and uh, Justice Kennedy's talk about the dignity of same-sex couples who have been allowed to marry under state law. Mm-hmm. So this is a couple who were allowed to marry in Illinois, and they're entitled to respect for the dignity of their marriage, he said. He said, the deprivation of the dignity of a state-sanctioned marriage is a cognizable injury under Article Three of the federal constitution. And he said that their chance of success on the merits is more than negligible. In fact, it easily meets the standard in the Seventh Circuit for a temporary restraining order. Uh, he rejects the argument that the attorneys for Indiana make that marriage is about channeling procreation, et cetera, et cetera. He said, well, that's kind of ridiculous. You know, they, they respect marriages of elderly people in Florida. He says they don't uh, ask for fertility tests when people get married. Uh, certainly when they're filling out a death certificate, they don't ask whether the couple had children. Right. You know, uh, so he was foreshadowing his likely ruling on the merits. Uh, he said the court finds there will likely be insufficient evidence of a legitimate state interest to justify the singling out of same-sex marriage couples for non-recognition. The court thus finds that plaintiffs have at least some likelihood of success on the merits because the principal effect of Indiana's statute is, quote, to identify a subset of state-sanctioned marriages and make them unequal. The quote is from Windsor. So clearly the Windsor case uh, is seen by uh, the judge here as determinative. And uh, this is, I think, the first district court ruling within the Seventh Circuit that provides a possible basis for getting the issue up to the Court of Appeals. Uh, so far, uh, you know, we have cases pending in the Sixth Circuit, the Fifth Circuit, the Tenth Circuit, the Ninth Circuit, uh-huh. Fourth Circuit. Uh, we'll soon, uh, Fifth Circuit is Texas. We'll soon have uh, a case most likely in the Eleventh Circuit uh-huh. because we have suits now on file in all the states in the Eleventh Circuit. Right. And Illinois has passed pass it through its legislature. So right. Illinois, Illinois uh, we're not going to get up to the Seventh yeah. Circuit on Illinois. Uh, so uh, this may be the case that goes to the Seventh Circuit, but it's it's an early stage. It's just the TRO. Uh, he could issue a preliminary injunction, and that's something that the state is likely to try to appeal. Uh, you know, they might not appeal the TRO, uh, just as the state of Ohio didn't appeal the TRO that Judge Black issued last summer uh, on behalf of the Obergfell uh, case uh, where uh, the, the partner had already died or was about to die, and he issued a TRO. Right, uh, so, so speaking so of appellate session. courts. So speaking of appellate courts, yeah. we did have oral arguments in the Tenth Circuit in April, yeah. one week apart, first Utah, then Oklahoma, three-judge panel, uh, two Republican appointees, one Democratic appointee. Trying to read tea leaves was very difficult. Uh, the court did not uh, webcast the oral argument. They did post audio recording on the court's website within a few hours uh, after the argument on each day. I listened to them. At the beginning, it was sort of hard to figure out who was speaking because, you know, these voices sounded a bit alike to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, ultimately, it seemed that the court was exploring procedural and jurisdictional ways to avoid ruling on the merits. Uh, they were questioning standing all over the place. Uh, they were questioning uh, you know, whether they had a, a justiciable question, all of that kind of stuff. But ultimately, on the questioning on the merits, it looked to me like at least one judge was clearly on the side of requiring the states to allow or recognize same-sex marriages. One judge seemed pretty much set against it, and the swing judge was not tipping his hand. Although uh, some people who uh, were present for the Utah argument said they thought they saw a, 
a, a tilt towards the plaintiff's side from him, but they weren't sure. Yeah. Uh, the African-American member of the panel, who was appointed by George Bush. Uh, so we're not sure when that opinion will come out. Uh, Court of Appeals doesn't have a strict time limit. Most circuits try to get opinions out within a few months of oral argument, but could take longer. Yeah. Um, and there's some concern that the, they might rule on a technicality and not get right. to the heart of the issue. That's that's possible. So. Uh, but, you know, if they find that there was no standing yeah. on the part of the plaintiffs in the case, uh, that would be a, a real problem because that would mean that the trial court decisions were invalid. But I don't think anyone could argue there's no standing. They yeah. were more concerned with the appellate standing of the state okay. or the county clerks. Uh, the, the problem from the Utah case is that the county clerk who was sued is not appealing. And the standing issue is whether the governor and the attorney general are appropriate defendants. And if they're not appropriate defendants, then they're not appropriate appellants. They said the governor, the argument was that the governor has no direct authority over the issuance of marriage licenses, and neither does the attorney general. And the, the comeback argument in Utah was the attorney general's office has supervisory authority over the county clerks. Uh. And therefore, the attorney general might be uh, the problem is that the Salt Lake County clerk, who was the uh, county clerk who was sued in the case, was very happy to give out marriage licenses, yeah. was eager to do so. In fact, uh, when, the, when the judge uh, issued the opinion, I think they kept the office open a bit late in order to hand out yeah. marriage licenses. But the governor has made pronouncements about how they were going to treat the people that did get married. So it seems like... Well, he said they recognized that they're legally married, but he said because the Supreme Court issued a stay... We can't recognize their marriages because the stay keeps the status quo, which is right. our marriage amendment. I, my only point is, though, he's making pronouncements about who, you know, how they're going to treat these couples that got married. And so it seems like he's talking a little bit out of both sides of his mouth. He's saying he has no authority over marriages. Well, I think the problem is he's faced with an unprecedented situation and he's not sure what to say. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's the situation. I mean, one other development we should mention briefly uh, as we end this segment, uh, the attorney general of Michigan, Bill Shewitt, had petitioned the Sixth Circuit to go directly to on bank. Uh, he said uh, in his petition, there's no reason to basically waste time treading water before a three-judge panel. Everyone knows this is going up. Why not go on bank and let the entire circuit hear it? The circuit uh, now has 15 judges. In fact, I think the 16th may have been confirmed but uh, hasn't been sitting yet. But uh, the court said no without – any explanation, really, of, you know, a one-liner. You know, we've considered it. We reject it. None of the judges is interested in going on bank. So that will be argued uh, by a three-judge panel. But the court also said, and it should be done expeditiously. So I think there is going to be a push to try to get the Sixth Circuit really moving because there are cases pending from every state in the Sixth Circuit right now. Yeah. All right. Interesting stuff. We're going to take another short break, and when we return, we'll be discussing an important new interpretation of Title VII's prohibition against sex discrimination. All right, we're back discussing the case of Trevier v. Billington, a new federal court decision denying a motion to dismiss by finding a gay man sufficiently pled a sex stereotyping claim, even though his only uh, gender nonconforming characteristics is his characteristic is his sexual orientation. Uh, so this follows sort of a long trend of. Uh, sort of expanding what is protected by the prohibition against sex discrimination uh, in Title VII of the Civil Rights Act of 1964. 
Uh, there was a famous case in 1989, correct, Art, that uh, first... Uh, gave us this theory of sex stereotyping that uh, right. created we, the... Yeah, we, we, we should make the point that shortly after Title VII went into effect, yep. the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission was questioned about whether uh, gay people or transgender people would be protected under Title VII, and they said no. That was their first take on it, and the courts pretty much lined up behind that. Uh, part of the problem was that sex actually wasn't in the bill that went to the floor of the House of Representatives in 1964. It was added by a floor amendment uh, sponsored by opponents of the bill who thought that if they could get sex added to the bill, then the bill would go down because yeah. it would be too controversial. But sex was added and the bill didn't go down. Uh, but the result was that there was very little legislative history. There was no definition in the statute of what was intended by sex. But this is 1964. This is like before the gay rights movement had really gotten the attention of Congress. Uh, and so courts subsequently said they clearly didn't mean to deal with sexual orientation or gender identity. But this turned around a bit with this case you mentioned from 1989, Price Waterhouse versus Hopkins, involving a, a woman who was a candidate for partnership at Price Waterhouse, a big accounting firm. And a lot of the partners thought that she didn't meet their image of a woman partner, or as they put it, a lady partner. And when they voted to put her application on hold, the manager of her office explained it to her. She said, well, you know, you've got to be more femme, basically. She said, you've got to wear makeup. You've got to get your hair styled. You should start wearing jewelry. And one of the arguments was that she was too assertive and aggressive and masculine in her approach, that she swore like a drill sergeant, said one of the partners on the rating sheets. Uh, and the Supreme Court accepted the argument that all of these comments were evidence of stereotype thinking, uh, that they were requiring her to comply with their concept of how a woman should act and behave. And as Justice Brennan wrote for the court in a plurality opinion, they said, you know, Title VII does not put women in, women in such a straitjacket that, in fact, evidence of sex stereotyping in the thinking of decision makers in a company can violate Title VII not because sex stereotyping as such violates Title VII, but that the use of sex stereotypes to make personnel decisions violates Title VII because it uh, treats people differently because of their sex, which at, at base is what Title VII is about. Mm -hmm. So since that decision, the federal courts have begun to explore the possible application of Title VII to discrimination claims by gay people and by transgender people. And the breakthroughs have come in two distinct areas. One is, uh, for transgender people, the courts have come around, and the EEOC, in an important decision, uh, have come around to the view that transgender people, almost by definition, defy sex stereotypes because they don't fit into this neat binary category right. in terms of uh, their, their gender identity, their gender presentation, uh, so the courts say clearly when an employer is taking action against someone because they find out that they're transitioning, that's clearly because of their sex mm. when you take the sex stereotyping theory into account. Uh, and then the other area is in the area of workplace harassment. Right. Uh, why is a particular employee singled out for bashing by co-workers, for denigrating comments and uh, nasty treatment by supervisors, et cetera? If it's because they are gay, the courts said for a long time, 
that's not covered by Title VII. Title VII was not intended to ban sexual orientation discrimination. But if they are targeted for harassment for a hostile environment because they're gender nonconforming, then that sounds like the Price Waterhouse versus Hopkins theory. That mm. sounds like a form of sex stereotyping, uh, treating someone in an adverse way because they don't conform with your gender stereotypes. And that could go beyond transgender. That could go to an effeminate gay man. Mm -hmm. That could go to a very masculine lesbian woman. And we're playing into stereotypes about talking about effeminate gay men. And so not all gay men would be protected right. under this theory. Only gay men who were effeminate in some way or lesbians who were perceived as being too masculine. Although, and, and the yeah. importance of this Tavir case is it gets beyond that. Right. Um, so Mr. Tavir uh, worked in the Inspector General's office at the Library of Congress. Uh, and I, as I mentioned at the end of the, the case, the other another famous Title VII case originated out of discrimination at the Library of yeah. Congress. Mr. Billington didn't learn anything from his, <laughs> his defense of his first case. Um, he became friends with his supervisor, who was a conservative Catholic, and uh, apparently the, his supervisor's daughter found out that he was gay. Uh, and then it's understood that the daughter told her father... And since that time, uh, things sort of drastically changed from at work. He started getting lectures about the sinfulness of homosexuality and uh, also started to just change the work environment generally. He got assigned these huge projects with little direction and then was given poor performance reviews, uh, was denied a pay raise in conjunction with his uh, another supervisor. Uh, he eventually uh, took a leave and then just uh, was informed he was terminated in April 2012. Uh, so in August of 2012, he filed a lawsuit against uh, the li Librarian of Congress, Mr. Billington, uh, and his first three account, uh, accounts in the, the case were Title VII uh, claims. Um, he also brought some constitutional claims and uh, some uh, alleged violations of the Library of Congress Act and Library of Congress policies and regulations. Uh, we got to a motion to dismiss. And uh, the judge said the Title VII sex discrimination claim stands. Uh, she, quoting her here now, she said, here plaintiff has alleged that he is a homosexual male whose sexual orientation is not consistent with the defendant's perception of acceptable gender roles, that his status as a homosexual male did not conform to the gender, defendant's gender stereotypes associated with men under MEC, the supervisor's supervision, at, <clears throat> or at the Library of Congress, and that his orientation as homosexual had removed him from MEC's preconceived definition of male. As plaintiff has alleged, the defendant denied him promotions and created a hostile work environment because of plaintiff's nonconformity with male sex stereotypes. Plaintiff has met his burden of setting forth a short and plain statement of the claim, showing that the pleader is entitled to relief as required by the federal rule of civil procedure. Uh, so we don't get a huge amount of analysis, but it's sort of uh, still sort of revolutionary what she's saying in terms of uh, Title VII law. Yeah, because Mr. Trevere, as far as we can tell from the court's opinion, was not effeminate. Right. Uh, he was not gender nonconforming in any respect other than the fact that he was a gay man. Yeah. And this court says sexual orientation can be by itself covered under Title VII. Yeah. Uh, that's implicitly what she's saying. Whether, whether she'll continue to say that when we get past the motion to dismiss now to a summary judgment motion right. or, or to trial is another story, but this is a bit of a breakthrough case on its own yeah, uh, when you consider that. In addition, there was a religious discrimination yeah. claim that was very interesting. Yeah. Uh, 
normally uh, the, the claim in a religious discrimination case is that someone is being discriminated because of their particular religious practice or belief. Right. In this case, he was being discriminated because of his supervisor's religious practices or beliefs. And uh, Judge Kalar Catelli says, okay, that can be a religious discrimination claim. It's because his religious beliefs evidently didn't conform with the religious beliefs of his supervisor. And so that can be a Title VII religion claim, even if the sexual orientation claim washes out. You know, there's still a religion claim, and there's still a retaliation claim, because he had complained about his treatment, and he claimed he was denied his uh, pay raise when he started making a complaint about the way he was being treated. Uh, So... You know, this this case could go in very interesting places. Yeah. Any uh, prediction on what the Supreme Court might do with, with this situation? Well, you know, the Supreme Court still hasn't dealt with the gender identity cases, and it has been yeah. ducking them because there have been some cert petitions. The Sixth Circuit was an early one out of the gate on this. They had two cases involving firefighters uh, who were transitioning from male to female mm-hmm. and lost their jobs and brought Title VII cases. And the Sixth Circuit ruled against dismissing those claims and actually, I think, granted summary judgment for the plaintiff in those cases, and the Supreme Court refused to grant cert on one of those. Uh, There have been cases in other circuits uh, involving other sex discrimination laws, not employment, uh, credit, and the uh, Violence Against Women Act, and in those cases, uh, the court has refused to review also. So the Supreme Court has never yet ruled on the merits on one of these transgender discrimination cases yeah. under Title VII. Yeah. Uh, so we're still waiting on that. Whether they would then go the next step on a sexual yeah. orientation claim. Uh, and I think what everyone is hoping is that that issue will be mooted out for the court by the passage of ENDA, yeah. which has passed uh, the Senate last fall, but which seems to be pretty much buried in the current session in the House. Speaker Boehner has said, no way, I'm not bringing that up for a vote. So the only way it comes up for a vote is through a discharge petition, since it is in committee now. And uh, I know there are some efforts going on to try to get a discharge petition, but those are rare. So uh, ENDA is unlikely to pass anytime soon, which means the Supreme Court may be confronted with this. All right. We're going to take our last short break, and when we return for our Of Note segment, we're going to actually discuss a new book. Uh, out on the Proposition 8 litigation uh, that has just come out and generated a fierce response. All right, we're back to wrap up with our Of Note segment for this edition. Uh, It's a bit unusual for us, but I thought this month we would discuss a new book, Forcing the Spring by Joe Becker, Uh, Many of our listeners have probably seen uh, in one uh, blog or another sort of the reaction by the uh, gay community to this book, and it's been pretty uh, hostile, to say the least. Um, And I had a conversation with Art a couple weeks ago where he had told me he didn't quite have the same reaction, so I thought it'd be interesting for him to, to talk about what he thought of the book. Okay, first to give the full title of the book, Forcing the Spring, Inside the Fight for Marriage Equality. And uh, Joe Becker, who is the author, is an investigative reporter at the New York Times. She was assigned by the Times to do a profile on Ted Olson, who was one of the lead attorneys in the Proposition 8 case. At the time the case was filed, there was a lot of interest because Olson, who had been Solicitor General in the first term of President George Bush, uh, who... uh, had actually represented Bush in the Supreme Court in Bush v. Gore 
in which the Supreme Court awarded the election to Mr. Bush, uh, was known as an icon of the right in, in legal circles, a, a Federalist Society stalwart, etc. And suddenly he's doing a marriage equality case. So the Times thought it would make a good human interest type thing. She interviewed him. She wrote the article. She got back in touch and said, I'm really intrigued by this case and your participation. Could I get an exclusive with you guys? You allow me to observe everything that's going on within the plaintiff's team, and in return I promise I won't write anything about it for publication until the case is over. And they agreed. Uh, she made the same proposal, actually, to Charles Cooper, who was the lead attorney uh, for the Prop 8 proponents in that case, the main defendant of Prop 8, and Cooper refused. Uh, he ultimately had an interview with her after the case was all over, but he refused to do it during. But So she was embedded, basically, with the plaintiff's team, and this book is the result. Uh, part of the problem that, that got so many people in the community stirred up, and I think Andrew Sullivan was first out in his blog, right. and then people just kept adding on, uh, is the title, Forcing the Spring Inside the Fight for Marriage Equality, suggests that this is a much broader book that looks at the whole history, and it isn't. This is a book that's specifically about the Prop 8 case. The main characters in the book basically are Chad Griffin, uh, Ted Olson, and David Boyce, the other uh, lead attorney in the case. And what the author does is basically channel their views and their perspective, not only about the case but about where the case fits in the larger issue of the marriage equality struggle and I think she's, she's not adequately careful about distinguishing between her views and their views or whether, as some have suggested as an embedded journalist, she adopted their views. But when she speaks in the book in the third person with the authoritative vo author's voice, it's, it became clear to me as I was reading it, she was really just parroting the opinions and the attitudes basically of Chad Griffin, who was really her main character and who uh, at the time... When, the, when he conceived this case, he was a political consultant and publicist on the West Coast. Now he's the head of Human Rights Campaign, the nation's largest gay lobby group. But, you know, he woke up from the election and the passage of Prop 8 uh, on November 5th, 2008, and he said, wow, you know, the marriage equality struggle has just been, you know, dealt this enormous blow. What a great setback. We, were, we had marriage in California. And like most people in California... Well, most people in most places. What happens in his home state struck him as the most important story. Mm -hmm. You know, this was a death blow to marriage equality for Prop 8 to pass, and something has to be done about it. And uh, although a lawsuit was immediately filed by the gay legal groups who had litigated the marriage equality case in California, it bombed in the California Supreme Court, and people didn't hold up much hope for it being successful. So he said, we got to do something. All these gay organizations on the state-by-state -state strategy is too slow. It's going to take too long. It's languishing, which is a word that has aroused great ire uh, and that she repeats in the book that the, the struggle was languishing. It was going nowhere, which is inaccurate. It was just not moving as fast as he would have liked, but it was right on schedule with what the gay litigation groups were planning. And their plan was not to get a case to the Supreme Court right away. Their plan was to win in a lot of states, to build momentum, and as people were able to get married in more and more states, there would be people withstanding to challenge DOMA because the federal government's refusal to recognize those marriages. And that was the way to get to the Supreme Court, bring a DOMA case to the Supreme Court. Mm -hmm. 
so the Supreme Court could decide preliminarily the issue without having to order all states to allow marriage because the issue before them in the Doma case would be whether the federal government has to recognize marriages that were allowed by the states. A narrow issue, a less politically charged issue, a more winnable issue. And then they thought if they got a good decision striking down Doma, that would add fuel and momentum to the state-by-state strategy. Maybe eventually they'd get a case to the U.S. Supreme Court, but it would be more years down the line. To Chad Griffin, this was too slow. You know, he's a member of a younger generation than all the lawyers he was talking to about this. It was like the old fogies telling him, you know, stuff it. You don't know anything. And uh, so he had some contempt for them, and that comes through in the book. And now as the head of HRC, he's got to dissipate that. So he he did an op-ed disavowing a lot of, you know, in The Advocate, he did an op-ed disavowing a lot of the views ascribed to him in the book. Well, I think the opening of the book has... Uh, yeah, particularly drove a lot yeah. of people comparing nuts. comparing Chad Griffin to Rosa Parks, you know, who wouldn't go to the back of the bus and supposedly ignited the civil rights movement. Well, everyone will tell you that she didn't ignite the civil rights movement; it was already ongoing. But she did help to push it forward, yeah. uh, and certainly, uh, no doubt about it, the Prop Eight litigation helped to push it forward. Even though, in the end, they didn't win a Supreme Court ruling. Uh, but, you know, there were all kinds of stuff that they couldn't have foreseen when they when they started. Uh, the reason that uh, people from Lambda and ACLU and National Center for Lesbian Rights at GLAD were telling them not to go forward in uh, November 9, 2008, or actually it was early 2009 when Griffin had a meeting with all these groups and they sort of shattered him down, they were afraid if you went prematurely to the Supreme Court before you had enough of... Uh, state-by-state success, uh, it would be too big a jump for the court to make, and we'd get a disastrous decision like Bowers versus Hardwick, which took us 17 years to recover from on the, on the sodomy front. So they didn't want to be set back by a bad Supreme Court decision. And from their perspective, their strategy was working. It was going forward. In fact, they had this big unanimous Iowa Supreme Court decision between November uh, when Prop 8 passed and the uh, lawsuit was filed in the spring. So they said, you know, we're we're making progress, slow but sure, little by little. Wasn't enough for Griffin. And Griffin may have lucked out in the fact that Governor Schwarzenegger and Attorney General Brown didn't want to appeal Judge Walker's order because that delayed their case getting to the Supreme Court by almost a year. Mm-hmm. Because ultimately the Ninth Circuit asked the California Supreme Court for an advisory opinion on the standing of the proponents of Prop 8 to appeal – and that delayed things for a year, as a result of which this case came up simultaneously with the DOMA cases, and the Supreme Court could punt on this case because there was a procedural way to punt while deciding uh, the DOMA case. And I think uh, a lot of people have also criticized that she doesn't give the Windsor case the attention that it should. Right. It doesn't really get any sustained attention until right before they're at the Supreme Court. Uh, she gives a little background on the case uh, on Roberta Kaplan, who litigated on Edie Windsor. She notes that Windsor's initial attempt to get gay rights groups interested in the case was unsuccessful, but she doesn't really go into the background at all uh, and explain the reason for that. The reason for that was they had a DOMA case, a carefully constructed DOMA case that they put together in Massachusetts with Glad right. and Mary Bonato and Glad as the lead, and they were doing well with that case. You know, they expected there was possible they were going to win that case and ride it to the Supreme Court. What they couldn't foresee at the time they filed that case was that Barack Obama would be elected. 
And what they couldn't see in uh, the period of late 08 to early 09 uh, was that Barack Obama would get some Supreme Court appoint- appointments and would One appoint <laughs> his solicitor general to the Supreme Court. And his solicitor general, Elena Kagan, was involved in the defense for the government of the First Circuit Doma case. So she would feel she would have to recuse herself. So it was good that the Supreme Court had another case to grant yeah. certain. But it didn't have to be Windsor's. Yeah. It could have, there was a case in Connecticut that was started by, uh, by Glad. Yeah. Uh, at the same time as the Windsor case. And there was a case on the West Coast, the Lambda case, Galinsky, in the Ninth yeah. Circuit. So there were other vehicles yeah. that could have gotten it up there. But when Robbie Kaplan agreed to take the Windsor case, she asked the ACLU to join, and they agreed. Yeah. So, you know, it's not like the uh, the movement was trying to block the Windsor case. Uh, <clears throat> it was just that they had their case yeah. that they were planning to ride. But I, I think I've, I've also seen Joe Becker on TV, and she talks about the the arguments that won in Windsor were taken from the Prop 8 briefs. They were in all the briefs. I, I mean, mean the, I know, but it's... The arguments were based heavily on Justice Kennedy's opinion in Lawrence. Right. And everyone was mining that opinion. Yeah. You know, for the good quotes, for the concepts, the human dignity concept. Uh, it was in the briefs. And, in fact, the amicus briefs in that case, uh, some of the amicus briefs were joint briefs that were filed in both cases simultaneously. Yeah. So, uh, you know, the the fact that there was language in uh, Justice Kennedy's opinion that had been argued in the brief in an oral argument by Ted Olson, so what? They were also argued by uh, right. by Roberta Kaplan. They were also argued by uh, dozens of amicus briefs. Yeah. So they could have come from anywhere, and where they really came from was Kennedy's opinion in Lawrence. Yeah. So, you know, I falter for that, for saying that it was languishing for uh, a painting, Evan Wolfson, uh, pretty much solely in terms of his disagreeing with the idea of bringing this case and not really pointing out the degree to which he masterminded the ballot victories we had in 2012. Mm-hmm. And if you want to play the what-if case, what if this Prop 8 case hadn't been filed? I think the most likely scenario, and you can't be sure, is that the gay activists in California who decided not to go back to the ballot box to overrule Prop 8 because this case was pending – they would have gone back to the ballot box, and if it was on the ballot in 2012, we probably would have won in California just the way we won in Maine and just the way we won in Maryland. And We had a clean sweep yeah. in the 2012 election. We probably would have won California too if they went back in 2012. And that means we would have had same-sex marriage in California seven or eight months earlier than we actually got it because we didn't get it until after the Supreme Court dismissed the appeal and the Ninth Circuit dissolved the stay yeah. in June of uh, 2013. So you could say that the Prop 8 case delayed the return of same-sex marriage in California because it sidetracked the effort to reverse Prop 8 at the polls, which probably would have been successful. There's a lot of probabilities and what-ifs there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, of course, in you know the fall of 08 and the spring of 09, no one yeah. foresaw all the things that happened. Right. All kinds of stuff you know, that, that you can't foresee. And the other point about this, and I think this is, this is where uh, critics of the book sort of go overboard. It's it's because they see people being slighted in this book who have played important roles in what has turned out to be a winning strategy. Yeah. But they have to concede. And Mary Bonato is quoted in the book. And Our Paul, honoree this year, by yes, the way. And Paul Smith, who uh, litigated uh, in the Supreme Court in the Lawrence case on behalf of Lambda and who was approached to be co-counsel in the Prop 8 case and turned it down. Uh, in his interview with Joe Becker, he said, yeah, the Prop 8 case helped to move public opinion forward. It is possible that the change in public opinion that 
the Prop 8 case definitely moved forward because of the masterful way that they handled the publicity around the trial and the appeals uh, has had an effect even on the Supreme Court in deciding Windsor. I mean, that public opinion had shifted, made it more possible for a majority to coalesce to strike down Section 3. Is is that to say that if there had been no Prop 8 case, that wouldn't have happened? I don't know. Could it be that the Prop 8 case and the way it affected public opinion helped us to win those ballot victories in 2012? It's possible. You know, in other words, this case was an important case, and it probably did push the issue forward in a way. It probably affected public opinion in a way. When she says at the end, they said, you know, whatever happens in the Supreme Court, you've already won. Well, there's truth to that. You know, it's on the one hand, maybe she overpaints it as a victory in the end. But, you know, same-sex marriage returned to California, and the plaintiffs got married. The day that the Ninth Circuit lifted the stay, both plaintiff couples got married, one in San Francisco and the other in L.A. She was at the San Francisco marriage, covers it in the book. It's a very emotional moment. I would say the book is worth reading despite its flaws. And it's probably a better read than the book that's going to be coming out this summer by Ted Olson and David Boyce, (laughs) which will probably not be as uh, fluently journalistically written unless they have a good ghost. I'll just add, too, HBO is putting out a documentary that supposedly uh, was produced by people similarly embedded with the plaintiffs and the lawyers, and they've actually reached out to me this week to invite us to a screening the first week in June. So if you're a member of the gal and in New York, I think we're going to have a chance to watch that movie, and you can make your own judgments about that as well. Um, anything else you want to add, Art? No, I think we're over our time. That's uh, sure. <laughs> interesting discussion. Uh, and that's, uh, that's going to be it for this edition of the podcast. Thanks, everybody, for listening. To read the latest issue of Law Notes, please become a member of the gal or a Law Notes subscriber by visiting uh, www.le-gal.org. This and future podcasts can also be found online in iTunes or at legal.podbean.com. Please take a moment to give us a few stars if you like the podcast. Follow Legal on Twitter at LGBT Bar NY or find us on Facebook. Thanks again, and we'll see you in June.